Listen for a word of God in Galatians chapter 2. Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up in response to a revelation. Then I laid before them, though only in a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, but because of false believers, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might enslave us, we did not submit to them even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might always remain with you. And from those who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders, what they actually were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those leaders contributed nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter, making him an apostle to the circumcised, also worked through me in sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. The Word of God. Knock, knock. Barnabas. Really? How many Barnabases do you know? Okay, I apologize. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. You may remember that Barnabas appears in the book of Acts a few times. His role is often that of trying to make a connection between the Christian mission to the Jewish people and the mission to the rest of the world, whom Jewish people labeled as the Gentiles. Barnabas was a Jewish man who became a Christian while in Jerusalem and who supported the early church by selling a piece of land and giving the proceeds to the apostles. Later in the book of Acts, it is Barnabas that introduces Paul, the it introduces Paul to the apostles and personally affirms the genuineness of Paul's conversion. Verse 2, I went up in response to a revelation. Then I laid before them, though only in a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul has already made his opening comments about the gospel at the beginning of this letter. For Paul, the gospel has to do with the purposes, the character, and the work of God. The gospel describes the nature of salvation and how this salvation is offered to all, including the so-called Gentiles. In the original language, the present tense of I preach or I proclaim indicates that Paul, when writing this letter, was still preaching the same gospel that he did before going to Jerusalem. And by the phrase, among the Gentiles here, Paul seems to describe his preaching to people living in Gentile lands, regardless of whether they are Gentiles or Jewish. This is of particular interest because later in these verses, the wording to the Gentiles is distinguished from to the circumcised, which is used to designate the Jewish people. Paul's life experience, as he self-describes it in the verses of chapter 1, as well as the beginning here of chapter 2, elucidates a lesson that Paul appears to have learned and maybe we can learn too. 
In attempting to work for God, we will have to learn to make room for God in our plans and expectations. We may make our calculations and our rules. We may assertively say that this or that is the case, and yet this approach can cause us to forget that God will come in as God chooses. Would we be shocked and outraged if God came into our awareness in a way that we had never looked for God to come? Maybe the more prudent thing is the maybe the more prudent thing to do is not to look for God in any particular or predetermined way, but simply look for God. As believers, we can expect God to be revealed, but we do not need to expect God only in a certain way. It doesn't seem to matter how much we may think we already know about God. The great lesson to learn here is that at any minute God may break in by means of a new way, a new method, a new revelation. At least that's what happened to Paul. Sadly, we routinely overlook the element of surprise. Yet God has surprised many people in the stories of the Bible. It can happen all of a sudden, as Paul says, when it is God's good pleasure. Maybe the lesson is to always be in a state of expectancy and leave room in our mindset for God to come in as God likes. From Jesus, Paul received the gospel and he did not let the old get in the way of the new. But like all religious pioneers, he revealed what the old was actually saying all along. No one can add or take anything away from you. Your direction comes from your relationship with God. And yet, even though Paul argues strongly for this, he also admits that he talked privately with the leaders of the church community because he didn't want to run his race by himself in vain. Paul's emphasis in this section is that also he did confer with the although he did confer with the apostles of Jerusalem with those of reputation in the in the Jerusalem church he did not receive from them any directives nor reproofs commentators have suggested that Paul was attempting to demonstrate his Christian liberty by bringing with him both Barnabas and Titus quote to make it clear that he was at liberty to be with a gent to be a gentile with Titus and a Jew with Barnabas thus proving the freedom of the gospel in each case unquote Paul did not desire human authorization for his mission and he believed that he had divine assurance of the validity of his preaching rather as FF Bruce aptly puts it quote his commission was not derived from Jerusalem but it could not be executed effectively except in fellowship with Jerusalem a cleavage between the gentile mission and the mother church would be disastrous Christ would be divided and all the energy which Paul had devoted and hoped to devote to the evangelizing of the gentile world would be frustrated unquote. neither Paul's ministry nor his message could be invalidated by any disapproval from the Jerusalem leaders but it would most likely increase the difficulty of his mission if they did publicly disapprove having no doubts about the divine origin of his gentile mission or the truth of the gospel he proclaimed Paul seemed to recognize a church that could continue to grow and succeed in its mission to the world even amidst its diversity a difference of approach or of method wasn't necessarily something to be feared as Ruth, as Ruth Graham the spouse of well-known preacher Billy Graham would say if two people always agree about everything one of them is unnecessary so then was the church community's recognition of the validity of Paul's gentile mission based on his account of how he received the revelation of the gospel or on what they heard about his actions or on what he presented to them privately as to the content of his preaching 
Maybe it was all of the above as brought together under the Spirit's direction. Paul says in verses 7 and 8, that they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter, making him an apostle to the circumcised, also worked through me in sending me to the Gentiles. The Jerusalem apostles came to recognize this. There is, however, a feature of the language in this statement that looks somewhat questionable. The designation of a gospel to the uncircumcised and another gospel to the circumcised seems to be at variance with Paul's own insistence that there is only one gospel. Now, it is a possibility that the weight of the difference is not between two kinds or two versions of the gospel here, but rather a difference with regard to audience and type of outreach. How do you read it? Are there two versions of the gospel here, not one? Is Paul defending a version of the gospel that is only for the Gentiles? Could that be what he means in chapter 1 when he is warning the Galatians not to change from the version of the gospel he taught them over to the version of the gospel that is for the Jewish people as proclaimed by Peter? Or, in these verses, do you see the introduction of two differing missionary strategies within an acknowledged doctrinal agreement? If we want to uphold and certify that there are not two different Gospels, then the difference must be in the recipients of the message. Do different people hear the Gospel differently? Do you listen to God in the exact same way today as you did five years ago? Has anything changed? Have you changed? Do you hear anything new in the Scriptures after the pandemic than you did before the pandemic? Are there any who recognize that they used to read the Bible one way but then experienced a new perspective after witnessing God working through women in the pastoral ministry? Does the gospel take on a new meaning for you after the death of a loved one? Do different people from different backgrounds and different cultures listen differently? Is that why God sent Peter to the Jewish people and Paul to the rest of the world? In his account of this visit to Jerusalem, Paul emphasizes that the Jerusalem apostles acknowledged the validity of his Gentile ministry, viewing it as parallel to their own Jewish mission. Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 says, And when James and Cephas and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. So together, they recognized the grace that God had given to Paul and reached an agreement that Paul would continue to preach to those who were not Jewish, while they, the Jerusalem apostles, would continue to preach to the Jewish people. But both parties, both groups agreed, remember the poor. Remember those who are financially impoverished. Throughout the Hebrew Testament, and the Greek New Testament, there are various words used for poor, and the definitions are many. Generally, most times that a word for poor is used, it designates persons and groups lacking, totally or in some degree, the necessities of life, food, drink, clothing, shelter, health, land, employment, freedom, dignity and honor, and so on. In the New Testament context, the early Christian church never blames the victims for laziness, vice, genetic inferiority, etc. 
but rather focuses on oppression as the basic cause of poverty. The early Christians were not passive in the face of such injustice and oppression. Rather, they vigorously denounced the cruel oppression and violence that impoverishes and destroys others. In Galatians 2 verse 10, the word used there can be translated continuing to remember the destitute. And this concluding reminder is viewed as a non-negotiable element in the Christian practice common to both ministry circles, whether led by Peter or by Paul. The poor might be someone who works for a living, poor but able to help oneself through one's own labor. There are also the poor and helpless, dependent on alms and donations such as a beggar. There are those who are miserably poor with lives full of pain, the poor immigrants, the small children, those who have so little that it leads to painful vulnerability, vulnerability where even one's own family doesn't understand, deficient, lacking, utterly destitute. So, remember the poor. In the original language, the word used here in Galatians can mean anyone from a beggar to someone in abject poverty, the needy, those who are in debt, anyone destitute of the necessities of life and subsisting on the alms and gifts from others. Also, there is the notion of those who have voluntarily become poor for the sake of the kingdom of God. Paul, as someone who was advanced in Judaism, and the Jerusalem apostles, also fully aware of the scriptural traditions, as well as being the first disciples of Jesus, all see poverty as a matter of grave significance to the community. It is in the Jewish traditions of the Hebrew Testament that we are brought face to face with the harsh living conditions of the poor, hunger and thirst, homelessness, economic exploitation, and legal injustices. All these factors form the societal structure of poverty. God's prophets protest what they see as the oppression of the poor at the hands of society's rulers. The poor are victims of economic and legal injustices, and God's people are asked to defend the cause of the poor. Paul appears to point out that he is not only adopting this policy from now on, but that he has already done so. Scholars make the case that the translation could actually say, this is what I have always been eager to do. In contrast to what we read here in Galatians 2 verse 10, how often have we heard Christians speak about intellectual beliefs, concerning ourselves only with doctrine, dividing over theological differences, making cognitive consent to a concept the only criteria for discipleship. Instead, the simple theology that we find here in verse 10 is essentially anchored in the idea that neither did God create too many people or not enough stuff. Poverty was not created by God, but we did it because we have not learned to love our neighbor as ourselves. Gandhi put it well, there is enough for everyone's need, but there is not enough for everyone's greed. Have we uncovered something here? Is this how you solve divisions in the church? Prove your fervor by your care for the poor. You go in your direction and teach the gospel. We will go in this direction and preach the gospel, but let's both remember the poor. Is that how we can do it? And what does it mean to remember the poor? The verb to remember in Greek as well as in English means not merely to wait until someone asks you for a gift, but more basically to keep someone in mind as worthy of affection or recognition. Some scholars have tried to understand this either more broadly or more specifically by saying that the Jerusalem apostles seem to have asked Paul, 
while he freely carried on his particular strategy for sharing the gospel with the Gentiles, to continue to keep the welfare of the Jerusalem believers in mind. The scholars highlight that there seemed to be something of a special relationship that existed between Gentile churches and the Jewish Christian congregation at Jerusalem. And we are reminded of the story of Paul's later collection of money from his church group so that he could take offerings to the Jewish believers of Jerusalem. Maybe this could be because of the believers in Jerusalem that we have read about in Acts who had sold everything and were sharing all things in common. Nevertheless, most scholars agree that this agreement to remember the poor cannot be confined only to a monetary gift either on the part of the Jerusalem apostles or of Paul. Rather, the point is that neither the Jewish believers in Jesus nor the Gentile believers in Jesus can afford to ignore the poor. The gospel that Paul preached is not about good works in order to earn salvation. It is not about the necessity of having to first become Jewish, if you are not already Jewish, in order to be saved. And it is not even about taking care of the poor in order to earn your salvation. Paul and Peter were sent by God to preach this good news, and also, in conjunction, as a corollary, in combination with the gospel, to remember the poor. As Christians today, we are descendants of either the gospel that was preached by Peter or the gospel that was preached by Paul. In either case, we are taught to remember the poor. That is an active verb. Remember the poor. In our present context, La Sierra has devoted many hours, many resources, many of our ministries and projects to remembering the poor. I am grateful to be a part of a congregation that has prioritized this for many years. And this message today still finds a way to be a practical reminder. It asks the practical question while acknowledging what many of us are already doing, but still challenging us, every one of us, to find a way to prioritize this. Remember the poor. When a big kid steals from a little kid, we put a stop to it right away. When a big-time adult steals from a small-time adult, we call it capitalism. Now, that's kind of a joke, but if we open our eyes, we do see that there is injustice towards the poor everywhere. People are being treated unfairly every day. How can you help? How can I help? Indeed, one of the major activities we can do is to run interference, object to the wrongs inflicted on other people, meddling in affairs which before seemed neither your concern nor your responsibility. We are told that a prudent person minds his or her own business, staying away particularly when not authorized to step in. But this gospel is not telling God's people to wait until the widows and orphans give them a mandate to come and help plead their cause. It is a call for us to be the champions of the poor. So what could be our application today? Maybe we can connect with a friend or with our family and pray and ask God for ideas and for opportunities to work for the financially impoverished. Think of anyone you know who you think is being treated unfairly and pray and see if there's anything you can do. And remember that praying is itself doing something. If you are the one oppressing others and impoverishing them, please stop. Intentionally join an existing project or do something along with others for the social justice of those who need our help. And let us have the presence of mind to remind ourselves that it is worship. The mission of reaching the world with the gospel will remain as good news when it gives special hope to the poor. The gospel of salvation is never limited to a future heavenly sphere. 
but includes material relief in this life so that we can all be alive together in God.